Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks. This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines, Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture, Stephen C. Perks, 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan Conkey. Chapter 1. Christianity as a Cult Quote, Christianity is not a religion. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Unquote. How many times have you heard this statement? Throughout my Christian life, I have heard Christians repeat this dictum. It is one of those evangelical shibboleths whose pseudo-wisdom seems incontestable to those who repeat it. Yet, it is precisely wrong. Not because Christianity is not a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Reconciliation with God and Christ is the heart of the Christian faith. But this is just the point. The relationship with God to which the believer is restored in Christ is inevitably a religious relationship. Christianity is a religion. And if our faith fails to have a religious effect upon us as individuals and upon the society to which we belong, it fails to accord God the worship he demands of us. What, in fact, the, quote, Christianity is not a religion, unquote, theory really means is that Christianity is a cult. We are used today to thinking of a cult as some form of weird belief that takes over a person's life. Examples of such cults are the Moonies, the Mormons, the JWs, etc. But this is really an incorrect use of the word cult. These are religions, not cults, at least if they do indeed take over the lives of their adherents. What, then, is a cult? A cult is, quote, a system of religious worship especially as expressed in ritual, unquote, or, quote, devotion or homage to a person or thing, unquote. The Concise Oxford Dictionary, 8th edition, 1990. The term is derived from the Latin word cultus, which is the form used most commonly by Christians when they wish to refer to the church's system of ritual worship. Doubtless to distance the Christian church from the associations that the word cult conjures up for most people today. The history of the cult is very interesting. In ancient Rome, one could join and practice the rituals of just about any cult one wished to adopt. There were many different cults, and they were very popular, but they were essentially personal devotion hobbies, not religions. The religion of Rome was Rome itself as the supreme political power. As long as Roman citizens acknowledged the religion of Rome, they were free to practice whatever cult they wished, the cult of Jesus Christ included. It was the early church's refusal to limit the Christian faith to the status of a cult that brought Christians into conflict with Rome. The practice of Christianity as a religion, rather than as a cult, 
brought the church into direct conflict with the religion of Rome. This was a clash of religions, not of cults. What, then, is a religion? The word religion comes from the Latin word religio, which means obligation, bond, reverence for the gods, from the verb religare, to bind. Inevitably, religion brings obligation, duty, that is, life in accordance with an obligation that binds man. The root of religio is lig, to bind, and is cognate with the word lex, meaning law. Religion, therefore, structures life. It structures the life of the individual and of society. This is precisely what a cult does not do. A cult is a personal worship hobby. It does not structure man's life, nor does it structure society. The Eastern cults that were popular in ancient Rome, such as the cults of Mithras and Isis, did not structure the lives of their adherents, at least not if they were good Roman citizens. What structured the lives of the Romans was the religion of Rome, which was a political religion. What is not often appreciated by Christians today is that it was precisely at this level of politics that the early church challenged Rome. Refusal to practice emperor worship was considered high treason by Rome. Quote, the officials of the Roman Empire, in time of persecution, sought to force the Christians to sacrifice, not to any of the heathen gods, but to the genius of the emperor and the fortune of the city of Rome, and at all times the Christians' refusal was looked upon not as a religious, but as a political offence. When the early Christians said, quote, Jesus is Lord, end quote, they were not making a cultic statement primarily. Worshipping Jesus as part of a cult of Jesus was not in itself forbidden. The emperor Tiberius had even proposed to the Senate at one time that Jesus be consecrated as a god. Quote, all religions and all gods could have their place in Rome, as long as the Roman state and its emperor were recognised as the link between the human and the divine orders, the link by whom all others held their continuity and linkage. The issue was this. Should the emperor's law, state law, govern both the state and the church, or were both state and church, emperor and bishop alike, under God's law and under the kingship of Jesus Christ? End quote. Politics is always and inevitably a religious matter. All states are religious states. If Christianity were not a religion, it could not have challenged the religion of Rome. The cults were permitted precisely because, as personal worship hobbies, they did not and could not challenge the religion of Rome. They could be absorbed with no detriment to the existing religious order of the Roman Empire. This was not the case with Christianity. Christianity offered the only open resistance to emperor worship in the whole of the Roman Empire. Quote, this resistance movement became more and more dangerous through its alliance in the capital itself with the senators of the old school and through its penetration of the ruling classes of the court itself and even the imperial family. End quote. One could practice the cult of Mithras or Isis and sacrifice to the genius of the emperor 
without compromising either. One could not practice the Christian religion and sacrifice to the genius of the emperor without compromising both. Christianity was a direct challenge to the authority of the emperor and of Rome since it proclaimed a different king to whom all men, including Caesar, owe an absolute obedience and whose law supersedes all other laws, including Roman law. That is, it proclaims a divine king whose authority and jurisdiction are total. The early church, unlike the modern Western church, refused to reduce Christianity to the status of a mere cult. Christianity for the early church was not merely a personal system of ritual worship, it was a religion. It structured the whole life of the believer by bringing him under an obligation, a duty to obey God first in all things. Here was the problem. Christianity teaches that man's first allegiance is to God in all things, not merely in the practice of the Christian religious cultus. The political religion of Rome claimed this primary allegiance for the emperor and for Rome. Man must, first of all, give political allegiance to Caesar and to Rome. The statement, quote, Jesus is Lord, unquote, was primarily, in the context of ancient Rome, therefore, a political statement, a direct challenge to the political order of Rome. It was a confession of allegiance to a different political order. Even the New Testament word for church, ecclesia, was not a cultic term but a political term, the term used in Greek for an assembly of the people as an organised political body. Rome permitted its citizens to worship whatever god or gods they pleased as members of the various cults. The worship of any god was acceptable to Rome as long as such worship remained essentially a private cult that did not challenge its adherents' primary allegiance to the political religion of Rome. The cults did not, therefore, structure the life of the Roman citizen or of Roman society. Rome claimed that for itself. The early Christians refused to be restricted in this way. They proclaimed Christianity as a religion, as that which structures the whole of life of man and society. Jesus is not merely the object of private devotion or the central figure in a popular cult. He is the Lord of glory, the one by whom all things were created, before whom all men must, and one day will, bow the knee, Caesar included. Today in the West, the situation is reversed. The Church no longer proclaims Christianity as a religion. By and large, and this is particularly true of evangelicals, Christians insist that Christianity is a mere cult, though of course the word cult is not used. The Christian faith is restricted to the status of a personal worship hobby. The idea of Christianity as a system of belief and practice that structures the whole of life and society, church, family, state and individual life, is, on the whole, anathema to evangelicalism and most other versions of the faith today. The sacred and the secular are different orders. Hence the acceptance of religions such as socialism and evolution by Christians. Christianity does not structure the thinking and the lives of most Christians. It provides them with a cult, a personal worship hobby. What structures the lives of most Christians is secular humanism, 
in one or more of its various forms. The shibboleth with which I began this essay is at least correct in one sense. Christianity is not a religion for most Christians today. But those who proclaim this dubious truth fail to realize that man is by nature a religious being. He will, therefore, inevitably structure his life religiously. If he does not structure his life around the true religion, he will structure it around a false religion. Unfortunately for many Christians, it is the religion of secular humanism, not Christianity, that structures their lives. Christianity is practiced merely as a cult, not as a religion. It is not surprising, therefore, that when non-believers convert to the Christian faith today, there is often no practical difference between their former lives as non-believers and their Christian lives following conversion to the faith. Unless someone is involved in something like drug abuse, drunkenness or pornography, his conversion to the Christian faith is not likely to change his life very much. The church is not likely to point out the contrast that conversion to the faith will demand. Neither is the church likely to teach the principles on which the new life of faith should be based and the practical obligations and responsibilities that go along with faith in Christ. The message is essentially not about life anyway, but about heaven and the afterlife. Jesus is the ticket to the afterlife. This is the message of the church today, but this is a cult of escapism, not a religion to live by. The only difference that conversion to the Christian faith is likely to make to the lives of most people today, therefore, is that they will worship at the local church in the cult of Jesus on Sundays rather than in the cult of DIY at B&Q. In other words, the cult of Jesus is added to the daily life of the convert but does not affect any significant change in his way of life. His children will most likely still go to secular humanist schools to be indoctrinated with the religion of secular humanism. He will most likely continue believing the religion of evolution, although God will be given a nominal role in the new syncretistic religion of, quote, theistic evolution, end quote. He will most likely still support the same political party, though now he will have, quote, spiritual, unquote, reasons, as well as personal reasons to offer as to why society should be structured around his own political ideals. And the church will seldom, if ever, challenge him to restructure his life and society around Jesus Christ and his revelation, the Bible. Christianity today is not practiced as a religion. It has become a mere cult. But by reducing Christianity to the status of a cult in this way, we have defaced it and emptied it of the power to transform our lives in any meaningful way. This is not Christianity. The early church would not recognize the modern situation in which the church finds herself as anything other than the equivalent of compromise with emperor worship. The church has reduced Christianity to a mere cult and has accepted secular humanism as the dominant and controlling religious force in the life of the believer and society at large. Christians worship Jesus as the deity of their personal worship hobby, but secular humanism is the religion that rules their lives. 
This is a defaced and powerless version of the Christian faith. What the failure to practice Christianity as a religion means is that the believer's relationship with Christ is superficial and ineffectual. It does not transform his life. The notion that, quote, Christianity is not a religion, it is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, end quote, is a perversion of the Christian faith because man's relationship with God is always religious in nature. To deny that fact is to limit God's jurisdiction over man's life. It is to claim, in effect, that Jesus is not Lord, that our relationship with him does not bind us to obedience to his law in all things. Christianity involves obligation. It binds us to a new way of thinking and living that is circumscribed by God's word. This obligation is a necessary feature of the believer's relationship with Christ. If it is missing in the believer's relationship with Christ, the believer's relationship with Christ will be hindered by this conformity to, that is, his sanctification in terms of, some other life-structuring law. The Bible calls this idolatry. To be reconciled with God and Christ means that one's life must be structured by one's relationship with Christ. That is, that one's life must be sanctified or set apart to Jesus Christ, to use more religious terminology. This brings us to the heart of what religion is. What those who espouse the notion that, quote, Christianity is not a religion, it is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, end quote, fail to realise is that any relationship between God and man is inevitably a religious relationship. In denying that Christianity is a religion, this shibboleth denies the biblical concept of sanctification, that is, dedication of one's life to Christ. It asserts personal salvation, that is, reconciliation with God and Christ. But in denying that the believer's life must be structured religiously by his faith, it denies sanctification of the believer's life to God. Unfortunately, the modern church, including most kinds of evangelicalism, has largely failed to recognise the definitive structure of the Christian religion. Instead, the church has fallen back on the practice of Christianity as a mere cult. Sometimes this has become a sacramental cult, as with the Church of England, for example, and sometimes what has been stressed is the cult of personal piety, as with most Protestant evangelical free churches. In each case, the faith is redefined in an unbiblical way, and the biblical concept of sanctification is allowed to be replaced, often unwittingly, by sanctification in terms of some other religious principle, usually the secular humanistic ideals and principles that Christians subliminally imbibe from the culture that surrounds them. If the church is to begin practising the Christian faith effectively once more, she must rediscover the identity of Christianity as the true religion. What is that identity? What is the definitive structure of the believer's relationship with Christ? All relationships have a structure, and all relationships are structured religiously, that is, they are structured by law. Without a lawful structure to man's contact with others, there is no relationship. The answer to the question, quote, what kind of relationship is this, end quote, 
will reveal something of the structure of a relationship. For example, father-son, husband-wife, brother-sister, employer-employee. What kind of relationship then does God have with mankind? The answer that the Bible gives to this question consistently is that God relates to man by means of a covenant. The Christian's relationship with Christ is a covenantal relationship. Likewise, the non-believer stands in a covenantal relationship with God. All men stand in a covenantal relationship to God. As a non-believer, man is under the covenant relationship established with Adam. This relationship, through sin, is one of alienation from God. The believer is redeemed from this relationship and stands under a covenant of grace in which he is reconciled to God by Christ. In Adam, man stands condemned for his sin. In Christ, he is redeemed and reconciled with God. Both are covenant relationships. God always relates to man by means of a covenant. Christianity, therefore, is a covenant religion. It teaches that God deals with mankind in terms of two main representatives, Adam and Christ. Our personal relationship to Adam and Christ determines our standing with God. In Adam, we stand under condemnation for sin. In Christ, that is, through our relationship to Christ, we are delivered from this condemnation and have peace with God. This new relationship with God, which the believer has through faith in Christ alone, is a personal relationship, but it is not a private relationship. Christ is a public person, as the Puritans used to say. Christ is our covenant head. God, God deals with us in Christ. Our salvation is dependent on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, since it is our relationship to Christ that determines our standing with God. But Christ is our covenant head, the representative of a people whom God redeems in Christ. God deals with mankind covenantally in terms of these two representatives, Adam and Christ. Our relationship to God is structured, therefore, by the covenant under which we stand. The Christian's relationship to God and Christ is not sacramental, nor does it revolve around personal piety. It is covenantal in nature. This covenant relationship with Christ should structure, that is, sanctify, the whole of the believer's life. One aspect of this covenant structure is the Christian public religious cultus, that is, church worship. But this is not the whole of the covenant by any means. When God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, he gave them his law. The preface to the Decalogue states, quote, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. End quote. Exodus chapter 20 verse 1. In other words, God is the Saviour. Therefore, their lives were to be structured by the covenant and they were to obey the covenant law. Obedience to the commandments did not deliver Israel from Egypt, but having been delivered by God, their Saviour, the children of Israel were now commanded to obey his law and live as a covenant community. One aspect of this covenant and a very important aspect was the temple cultus, since it pointed to Christ. But the covenant was not exclusively cultic. It governed not only the temple cultus, but the life of the family, 
the life of the nation socially and politically, the state, and the life of the individual, that is, society as a whole. In just the same way, Christians are not saved by obeying God's commandments. But this does not mean that they do not have to obey his commandments. We are reconciled to God through Christ alone, by faith alone. Therefore, since this is the case, since we are now reconciled to God in Christ, we must obey his commandments. This is what Jesus said, quote, If ye love me, keep my commandments, end quote. John chapter 14 verse 15. The word of God should structure the life of the believer. In other words, the life of the believer should be set apart, sanctified by conformity to God's word. John chapter 17 verse 17. And since we are commanded as a community of God's people to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, this means also that God's word should structure the life of the nation as well. This new structure to man's life in Christ does not apply only to the Christian cultus, what happens in church. It applies to the whole of man's life and it applies not merely individualistically. It applies to the new covenant community as a whole, which is commanded to bring all nations under the discipline of Christ. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. Obedience to God's law does not and never did save anyone from their sin. God's law is not, and never was meant to be, a means of redemption. Rather, its purpose is to structure the life of man and society. God's law is the law of the covenant under which man is redeemed from his sin, and therefore it is meant to structure the covenant life of the individual and the community of which he is a part. God's law structured the covenant and therefore the believer's relationship with God in Christ. It also structures man's relationship with all other men and things, quote, Love worketh no ill to his neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling, that is, the keeping, of the law, end quote. Romans chapter 13, verse 10. In the new covenant relationship to which man is restored in Christ, therefore, God's law is written on the believer's heart. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 31 to 34. Consequently, as Thomas Schiermacher has pointed out, Christianity was often called in the Middle Ages the Lex Christiana, the Christian law, in contrast to the Lex Mohammedana, that is, the Mus- that is Muslim law, or Lex Antichristi, that is, pagan religion. The Christian faith is a religion, a religion defined by the covenant relationship that binds the believer to God. This covenant is structured by God's law. It is not a cult. It is a way of life. It affects how we live at home, at work, in family life, at leisure, and in all other human activities. It affects not only the believer's personal devotional attitude in each of these areas, it structures these areas of life totally. This means that the way in which we educate our children must be governed by the covenant, that our family lives must be governed by the covenant, that the way we think and act politically must be governed by the covenant, and how we pursue our vocations must be governed by the covenant. All our relationships, not only our relationship with God and Christ, but our relationship with the world in which we live and the society of which we are a part, must be structured by this covenant. If the way we live 
as individuals, families, as a church, and as a nation, is not so structured by the covenant, we offer God less than he demands of us, and we reduce the faith to a cult. The early Christians refused to do this, and this is what brought them into conflict with Rome. Sadly, this is the condition in which much of the church finds herself today. The modern church has settled for what the early Christians refused to accept. Christianity has become a mere cult for many believers today. Their religion is secular humanism because it is secular humanism, not Christianity, that structures their lives. Christianity, however, is a religion because it is the reconciliation of man to God, a new covenant relationship with the Lord of creation. This relationship should affect the whole of man's being in life. The church, therefore, must cast out her idols and begin once more to structure her life around God's covenant word, the Bible. This means that she must seek to understand how that word applies to the whole of life and live accordingly. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.